University of California Television presents this podcast of the controversy over marriage with Jonathan Rausch and Maggie Gallagher. This program was recorded at UC Santa Barbara on May 10, 2005, and is part of the Walter H. Capps Center series. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. We're going to begin this evening's program, and we're, we're really um, fortunate to have two very um, um, well-authoritative uh, type people to deal with this issue, uh, representing the controversy that indeed exists. Uh, here, seated near me, is uh, Jonathan Rausch, who um, is a correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly, a senior writer and columnist for National Journal. Uh, his most recent book, which I suppose is the one that's available back here, is entitled Gay Marriage, Why It Is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America. He's a writer in residence at the Brookings Institution uh, in Washington, D.C. And to my far side here is uh, Maggie Gallagher, who is president of the Institute for Marriage and Public Policy. She's editor of marriagedebate.com and also uh, co-author of a book called The Case for Marriage. She's a leading voice in the so-called new marriage movement and also named by National Journal to its 2004 list of the most influential people in the same-sex marriage debate. So we're really pleased to have both of them here uh, in this uh, very important conversation. And by mutual consent, Jonathan goes first. Jonathan. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, gosh, it's the first time in Santa Barbara. I've been here approximately 24 hours and have already decided to move here. Um, what an extraordinary place. Thank you to Maggie. Thank you to Wade. Thanks to, to all of you. This is, in many ways, the great debate of our time. My name is Jonathan Rausch. In 49 out of 50 states in this country, it is illegal for me to marry anybody I love. Um, some of you may be in that position. Others of you are married or will be married someday. Those of you who are straight, I ask you for just a moment to imagine what life would be like without the prospect of marriage, not only without the marriage you may happen to be in right now, but growing up, the first kiss, the first date, the first going steady, all with no hope that any of this would end in the stability, the community acceptance, the domesticity that goes with marriage. I think you find your life looks very different and not improved. There are today 9 or 12 or 15 million Americans in that position, and I'm one of them, and I can tell you it's, it's not a nice place to be. It's a situation that I regard as unfair and unsustainable, but above all, unwise. You gathered from the title of my book where I come out on this, no mystery, I think that same-sex marriage is the trifecta of modern American social policy. It is a win-win-win. You don't get many of those. Um, it is good for gay couples and gay people, whether coupled or not. It is good for society. It will stabilize communities. It will shore up, in my opinion, marriage itself, much likelier to help the institution of marriage than to hurt it. good way to explain that is with reference to one of the social facts that we now know as certainly as any other out there in the literature. Marriage improves people's lives. Married people, because they are married, are healthier physically. They actually live longer. They are emotionally happier. They have less depression. They have less suicide, less mental illness. They are financially better off. They are wealthier as a result of being married. Why is that? It's because marriage doesn't just ratify an existing relationship. Marriage fortifies the relationship, and that is because marriage is not, contrary to what many people seem to believe, a private contract between two people. It is a contract that a couple makes with their community. 
They stand there together and make a promise to the community that we, the two of us, will be there for each other from this day forward. And in exchange for that, you, the community, recognize us as family and provide us with the tools, not benefits, very few benefits of marriage, but the tools that we need to look after one another so that, for instance, we can both be in the same country together. We can look after each other, no questions asked in the hospital. We don't have to testify against each other in court. We can uh, inherit our disability in case one of us gets, gets sick and so forth, can't work. Marriage creates family. It creates kin. It takes people who are not related in any way, shape, or form and turns them into next of kin. And ladies and gentlemen, everybody needs family. It is crucial not only for individuals but for society. It is very important for individuals, of course, for gay couples who are the only people in America who are locked out of the culture of marriage and all of the goods that it brings. Only gay people face the problem that marriage is unattainable. And that has proved a scalding deprivation for gay couples, but also for gay individuals who've grown up in a marriageless culture and all of the instability that in the past that that has imposed. Yes, this is a civil rights debate. That's important to understand. I think that straight Americans would never deprive themselves of the opportunity of marriage. I think it's unfair for them to put gay people in that position. But more than that, Marriage is about the integration of our personalities and about the integration of sex, love, children, yes, children, and marriage. Children, absolutely. Marriage is essential for them, and 28% of gay couples, according to the 2000 census, have children, are raising children. It is beyond me why society would be better off for those kids to grow up out of wedlock. It sends all the wrong signals about marriage. Marriage is, of course, good for society. Society benefits when people form stable, settled, responsible families, look after each other, look after kids. Marriage is a much better context than anything else we know of for raising kids. It is in society's interest, this ought to be obvious, for individuals in society to be healthier, happier, and wealthier, and that's what marriage does. It is also in society's interest for people to be stable. Thought experiment, gay couple next door, would you rather they be unmarried or married? Seems to me pretty obvious that your community property values are going to be higher if you have a married demographic than an unmarried demographic. But finally, the most elusive point of all, but I think in many ways the most important, is it's widely assumed that gay marriage is an attack on the institution of marriage. It is, no doubt about it, an important change in the boundaries of marriage. I think it's impossible to deny that. But what will the effects be on the larger culture? Many people assume the effects have got to be negative. It's not at all the case. I believe the effects are likely to be positive. I think we face a crossroads in this country of commitment to marriage or splitting up into a host of alternative arrangements, including partnerships and cohabitation and civil unions and various forms of marriages and so forth. Gay marriage sends a cultural signal that is very, very affirmative about marriage. It says marriage is the gold standard for committed relationships. It says sex, love, marriage, and children go together. It says marriage is an opportunity and an aspiration that everyone should have, and it's something that in many quiet and subtle ways ought to be encouraged. Marriage is in serious trouble in America today. One-third of all American children are born out of wedlock, a staggering number. Half of new marriages end in divorce. Increasingly, young people are choosing cohabitation instead of marriage. But ladies and gentlemen, the problem today is not gay couples who want to get married. The problem is straight couples who are not getting married we're not staying married. Gay marriage is not part of the retreat from marriage that straight America has been involved in for the last 30 years. It is part of the road back. It is part of replacing marriage as an ideal and a template that is not equivalent to, but is in fact superior to other lifestyle choices. We don't force anybody. There's nothing wrong with not getting married, but it sends a very positive signal to children, whether you're black or white or male or female or gay or straight, or for that matter, for adults, whether you're old or you're young, whoever you are, marriage remains the ideal. It remains the ultimate commitment. Thus it is, I think, that we miss a splendid opportunity if we don't have gay marriage to shore up marriage. As I said, it is not often you get one of these, an opportunity potentially to strengthen marriage, to strengthen communities, to strengthen couples, to integrate gay people into society, and indeed to make them better as people. And finally, 
to meet our own commitment as Americans to the words of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And ladies and gentlemen, I know of nothing, absolutely no institution, that is more important to the pursuit of happiness than the opportunity to marry. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. It's, it's just always an honor to share a stage with Jonathan, with, uh, with whom I think I share so much, even though we disagree on this, uh, ultimately on the issue of same-sex marriage. Um, and I'm confident that if John and I could get in a room and, and, and kind of negotiate about what the consequences of this change would be, that we, we could settle this in a, probably five, ten minutes and take it out of there, uh, and move on to other topics. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the way social change works or the consequences of social change works. I'd like to, in, I, I'm, I also have to say that I'm extremely impressed that John could compress a highly complex, deep, and rich argument into five minutes, and I'm sure that I cannot match him there. So I'd like to, instead of trying to respond in that way, do three things in five minutes. Uh, first, I want to know a little bit about you, then I want to tell you a little bit about me and how I got here. And finally, I want to talk about the larger marriage controversy. The topic is the marriage controversy, right? And we're in the middle of a particular one about same-sex marriage, and I'm sure we'll say a lot more specifically. But I'd like to lay out for you wh why are we in this marriage controversy now the, from the way I see it. Um, first, about you. Uh, can we have a show? I'd like to figure out how many of you are inclined to think you're in favor of gay marriage? How many tend to think they're, you're against? How many are either unsure or would prefer not to disclose? So how many of you uh, are inclined to be in favor of gay marriage? Uh, how many of you are inclined to be opposed? There's none, actually. And how many of you would prefer not to disclose? Oh, one maybe prefer not to disclose? Okay, sorry. Um, it's not unusual when John and I are debating, perhaps a little stronger uh, on John's side. Um, how did I get involved in the gay marriage debate? Well, the real answer is that in 1982, when I graduated from Yale, I had an out-of-wedlock child. Um, and uh, that launched me. I became a journalist and a single mother. I was an unwed mother for 10 years. I come from a very happy family with a very strong relationship with my own father. And... Um, Although I, like all mothers, my child is the most precious thing to me, and I certainly have no regrets at all about it, I became aware of, first of all, the large number of children in our country. When, when you began to see in these 80s these large statistics about the percentage of children growing up in fatherless homes, who, some large numbers of whom had not seen their fathers at all in the past year, um, that became more than a statistic to me because it's what happened to my son. Um, and I began to reflect on how, as privileged as I am, here I am, a Yale graduate. I think I'm a pretty good mom. I have a very supportive and affluent family helping me. I began to reflect on how I could not give to my son everything that had been given to me, right, from both of my parents working together, and how much more difficult it would be for people who didn't have their parents' wonderful marriage to rely on and all the benefits that it gave them as all those other single mothers out there raising their children alone. And I began to, at the same time, there was this vast increase in social science literature, which, which when I had my son, scholars were extremely optimistic about how high rates of family fragmentation, large new numbers of single motherhood, represented progress. It was, it was liberation for women. It was, we're getting over those old taboos about family structure. And yet, by the late 80s, we began to get some serious concern from social scientists that, in fact, there are real problems for children when they're raised and when their own mothers and fathers don't do the simple thing of getting and staying married for their children. Um, and so I became launched in this odd career. Some people know me as a syndicated colonist, but I've written three books about marriage. I've worked with some of the top family scholars. And what I've done for most of that career is going around the country saying things like, well, you know, children need mothers and fathers, and marriage is how we get that for children. And um, this perspective. And, and by the way, although it's very true, as Jonathan says, that marriage is in trouble in this country, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, it's also true that this kind of what, what I call intellectual organizing, not 
just by me, of course, really did make a difference. That uh, instead of doubling every decade, for example, the, the rates of unmarried childbearing appear to have tailored off. The divorce rate peaked in 1982 and is beginning to decline. And the decline, by the way, the New York Times reported a few weeks ago, is concentrated among people with college degrees, which happen to be the kind of people who read books like The Case for Marriage and other pay attention to the social science research on what happens to children when they divorce. Um, and um, the... Uh, so the, and, and, and the people who are married report higher commitment to marital permanence. Uh, black children are more likely, just slightly more likely, it's just the briefest turnaround, but after, again, years and years, decades of having these figures get worse and worse every year, we seem to have turned a corner and have, have, have begun the process of strengthening marriage as a social institution. And it's a big job because marriage really is a very important social institution. Uh, and the crisis we face, when we talk about why are we here talking about a major change in a structure of a basic social institution, there are lots of true answers. One, of course, is the immense progress towards treating gay people with greater respect and dignity in the public square. Um, another answer is the uh, um, you know, increasing commitment to family Diversity has created more controversy around marriage. The sexual revolution and the feminist revolution created controversies. All of these are true, but what I'd like to point out is that we're facing a different kind of marriage crisis as well. It's a crisis that affects every developed country in the entire world. Every country that has a developed economy and uh, is a, a democratic form of government and is, has a government undertaking some pretty important social insurance functions is facing fairly simultaneously signs of difficulties around this issue, what used to be very easy for cultures to do, getting men and women to get married and more or less raise their children together most of the time reasonably well. High rates of divorce, uh, increasing rates of unmarried childbearing, and then this other sign of problems, which is the collapse of fertility rates, particularly in Europe and actually also in developed economies in Asia. So that Europe has now, for, for two generations, had below replacement fertility rates. You're, you're, you're seeing that the family is not performing its most basic function of reproducing the society. Something is happening all over the world. In those societies that we most value, that are best at human flourishing, there's a problem around marriage. Why should we care? Okay, why do we care? Maybe the modern world changes, why should we care? There's three answers for that. Um, the first is that when parents don't get and stay married, children suffer. If I had more time, I could work you through the social science evidence, but basically every bad thing that can happen to a child happens more often when its mother and father do not get and stay married. Everything from juvenile delinquency, mental, rates of mental illness, physical illness, school failure, early and promiscuous sexual activity leading to higher risk of you know, being an, a teen mother, an unwed mother or father. Um, in every way we know how to measure, children do better off in one particular family structure of the family structures that have been well studied, which include um, blended families, uh, cohabiting families, and um, intact married families. And I just want to briefly sum up Child Trends, which is a very mainstream organization, to show you how broad this consensus has been. Many things affect child welfare. This is not the only one, but marriage is one of them. Research clearly demonstrates that family structure matters for children, and the family structure that helps the most is a family headed by two biological parents in a low-conflict marriage. There is thus value for children in promoting strong, stable marriages between biological parents. The second reason it matters, so children suffer when adults don't give them this kind of protection. The second reason it matters is that whole communities suffer. There isn't a social problem that we deal with domestically that doesn't have at least some relationship to high rates of family fragmentation. So taxpayers, communities pay a price. But the third reason is that uh, in the long run, you know, it may be possible for society to successfully reproduce itself over time without marriage, but we don't actually happen to know of any, right? Mar marriage is the way in virtually every known human society in which men and women come together and make the future happen. So when I look at the marriage crisis that we face, 
it is a crisis that has nothing to do with gays and lesbians. It wasn't caused by them. It, it hasn't, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it, I certainly do not want to scapegoat gays and lesbians, but it does have everything to do with the fact how committed we are as a society to strengthening marriage, to increasing the likelihood that adults are committed to raising their children together, that men and women raise their children together under the rubric of, of marriage. Um, and it means uh, for men and women who are attracted to the opposite sex, the passive option, unless you put an enormous amount of social energy into trying to direct the erotic energies of young men and women into this thing called marriage, the passive option is lots of fatherless children across multiple households and there's an intergenerational downward effect of this happening. Um, what does this have to do with same-sex marriage? The very moment in which, you know, what, what I've done for the last 15 years, the moment at which we're trying to reconnect marriage to its roots, to move it away from the idea that it's just about the adults' relationships and how happy you are with it, and to seeing it as a core way in which men and women, need, you know, in connecting it to its roots and managing this human phenomenon you can call procreation or, or babies. Um, what same-sex, let me, let me just tell you first of all, in the middle of a crisis like this, I didn't think that we should be going to conduct social uh, experiments on this institution. Right? I, I simply do not believe that it's prudent or wise when you have 24 million fatherless children in your country to say the one thing we're going to do to the law of marriage is to change it so that it's no longer about bringing together men and women to make the next generation. It's now about something else. Maybe it's about making kin out of adults, which is one of the things that marriage does. Uh, maybe it's about affirmations of adult intimacy needs. I don't know what it will be. But I don't think that, you could, that we have to face the reality that if we move towards a unisex vision of marriage, uh, we are fundamentally altering its relationship, its, its core relationship to this thing called making the next generation and uniting that baby to its own mother and father. Um, and I don't think that it's wise and I don't think it's kind and I don't think it's compassionate and I, uh, to do so in the middle of a marriage crisis of the dimensions that we're currently facing. So fundamentally, how do I know that this is what same-sex marriage will do? First of all, I know it because that's what every court decision that has gotten us to same-sex marriage has done. If you view, to view, to get to same-sex marriage as a civil right, which is the main argument being made, you have to say there are no differences, no relevant differences between same-sex and opposite-sex couples. You have to downgrade from consciousness, therefore, the one kind of big glaring difference, which is that only sex between men and women makes children, and only marriages between men and women unite the two parents of the child into one family unit. And we have to say, therefore, first of all, that this is no longer part, if it ever was, of our core understanding of what marriage is supposed to do. And the second thing we're going to say is that people who hang on to this older vision of marriage, I think what you might call the conjugal vision of marriage, are like bigots. We're like bigots who opposed interracial marriage. I don't understand how, I know how difficult it is uh, in the current environment or in any environment to raise young men to be good family men, to get young people to do any of the difficult things they need to do if they're going to give this, their children this benefit. And I don't think that they're going to be able to do it in a society that says the idea that children need their mothers and fathers and that marriage is the institution that's about making this happen, that, those, that this idea is itself an example of bigotry or animus. Um, and that's why I entered this debate very late. I thought it had been too dominated without prejudice to how important the debate on gay and lesbian civil rights, uh, the integration of gay and lesbian people into society or homosexuality is, that the debate had been dominated by people for whom this was, and I'm not speaking of Jonathan particularly, for whom this was the primary issue and really the only issue on the table and that we needed to have more people thinking seriously about what it would mean for marriage and what it would mean therefore for our chances of resolving 
this one great crisis that we don't yet, frankly, as John says, we don't yet, frankly, have the answer to. Thank you. Well, thank you, Maggie. Um, and thank you all for listening so attentively. Uh, what you just heard is to me something important and something rather moving as an openly gay advocate of gay marriage, which is a case for gay marriage which is not, in my opinion, anti-gay, which rests on the question of what marriage is for and not what homosexuality is about or whether I am a good person or whether um, it is not focused on hostility toward gay people, and that means a great deal to me, and I think we should listen very closely, agree or disagree to what Maggie said. Um, I don't think it's right. I think that goes without saying, and I think we should drill a, a little bit deeper to figure out where our differences lie. One of the questions of where our differences may lie is what is the obligation of the state and society toward the individual, toward the human life, the gay person in society, Maggie used the phrase social experiment. With all due respect, I am not a social experiment. I am a human being with real aspirations and goals. Now, it may be true that gay marriage might not be ideal from the point of view of straight America. We'll, we'll get to that question in a second. But let us never forget that there are millions, literally millions of Americans bearing a severe hardship, and that is exclusion not only from the fact of marriage today, but from the culture of marriage and the aspiration to marry. And this is a life deflecting and in many cases even a life deforming experience. And it is not good enough just to say that gay marriage might be bad for somebody else, therefore all these gay people don't have it. In fact, every life is important and those gay lives must be weighed in the balance. Maggie has written in an article, National Review, will same-sex marriage strengthen or weaken marriage as a social institution? If the answer is that it will weaken marriage at all, we should not do it. The problem with that sentence is it leaves those millions of gay lives completely out of the equation. It says that in effect, what happens to those people is not to be weighed against what happens to the rest of society. Now, I believe that that oversight is merely an oversight, but I think it's important as we debate this for me to recognize that the effects of gay marriage on straight America are very important. This is a civil rights debate, but it is not just a civil rights debate. And if it were true that gay marriage would severely damage our most important social institution, I would be against it. It would not be a civil right worth having any more than the right to vote for women would be a civil right worth having if it were true that that would destroy democracy. We gay people have an obligation to consider the consequences of gay marriage to the rest of society, but in exchange, we expect and demand that straight America always keep in mind the consequences to gay Americans of being excluded from marriage. Having said that, what about the effects of gay marriage? Maggie explained to you why she got into this debate. A word about why I'm in it, and that's this. I think there is a right answer to the gay marriage issue. I think that Europe has to a large extent got this wrong. I think Canada is in the process of getting it wrong. America is uniquely situated to get the right answer if we don't kick it away. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I was on NPR this morning, here at the local station. And you know, amongst all the phone calls, a guy named, I think, Jeremiah calls in and says, this is obviously not someone who's anti-gay. And what Jeremiah says is, you know, this is an age-old institution. Do we really have to change it right now? Isn't that pretty risky? Can't we do something else? Jeremiah turns out favors civil unions, but he says, take this institution of marriage and leave that what it is. In my book, if... Did I mention I have a book for sale here? Um, in my book, I go through a lot of reasons against gay marriage, and I find nothing in them one by one, except one, and that's a very powerful one. It has to be taken seriously, and it just says this. Marriage has been as it is, male plus female. Many other things have changed, but never that. Continuously in our in Western civilization for 3,000 years, 
What about the unforeseen consequences of changing it? How do we know what will happen? If the consequences are terrible, what if we can't take them back and we do severely damage this institution? I believe we must take that awfully seriously. What you hear between Maggie and me is this kind of difference. Maggie says children need mother and father. Biological mother and father are best, and that, by the way, is borne out by the evidence. Biological mother and father are indeed best on average. And she believes that gay marriage will make that less likely. Somehow it will make fathers and mothers less likely to stay together and be there for their kids. I frankly don't see it. I do not see a mechanism by which gay marriage will make it less likely for women and men to get married and have kids. My view, as you know, is the opposite. If anything, gay marriage is going to strengthen the signal that encourages straights and everybody else to get married as opposed to cohabiting or what have you because it will strengthen the cultural signal that prefers marriage to other arrangements. But here's the deeper point. We cannot resolve that issue on this platform tonight. We cannot do it in our armchairs at home. We are up against an empirical question here and one that must be answered. And ladies and gentlemen, there are risks on both sides of the equation. Something I tell conservative audiences all the time, very hard to put this across, but there are very significant risks to marriage and society if we don't have gay marriage. One of those risks is that we will spend the next 30 or 40 years creating alternative arrangements to marriage, many of which will be open to straight people, partnerships and whatnot, and will also bestow many of the, merit, of the benefits and prerogatives of marriage on cohabitation over time. To a large extent, that's what's happened in Europe and in Canada. A second risk is that if we define marriage in discriminatory terms, the next generation will begin to shun it, just as my generation shuns clubs that don't admit women. Marriage will become culturally obsolete. I'm not saying it will happen, but it's a very significant risk if we have a national ban on gay marriage. So what's the answer? What do you do in a situation like this? This, ladies and gentlemen, is why I think we in America can get this right. We ought to try gay marriage in a few states. One of them is trying it right now. They ought to be states that are reasonably supportive of the institution, give it enough community support so that these marriages are viewed as real marriages, and the rest of the country should just wait and do nothing. Let's find out. I believe we're going to see in Massachusetts that nothing terrible happens to anybody else's marriage, that in fact people will say, hey, this is a pretty good thing for the state. People are better off as a result of that. The hardest thing I do when I talk about gay marriage, is explain to gay couples, people like me, why we should wait for a number of years and let the states settle this one by one at a time when most states are in fact banning constitutionally same-sex marriage. California may do it by referendum in 2006. The answer to that, I think, is that what we want as gay people is not something a court can give us. What we want is not just the piece of paper. What we want is the community recognition of us as family that will help bond us together in the long term. And that's something that's going to take time. And that's something we're going to have to show America that we, our marriages, are not going to hurt them. That's the way it's got to be. And that means, I think, that we get this right in America by leaving this issue at the state level. A few states will have it. Most states will not have it. And in 10 or 15 years, we will know the answer. Let's do it that way. Thank you. I'm going to try to briefly respond in a direct way to the questions that um, I think John really posed for me. And one is the challenge about... Um, you know, how can you possibly justify such a deprivation for gay people? And I think that the answer to the, and I don't expect to satisfy John, but this is the way that I really do think about it. I don't think that this is a question of asking for something special for straight people that's being denied to gay people. I think that, in fact, there is a special need among people who are attracted to the opposite sex that the institution of marriage arises in order to fill. You can call it a, a blessing, you can call it a defect, but it's something that's very particular to people who are attracted to the opposite sex. Um, th that's just part of the answer, but let me sketch it out briefly. 
marriage is a virtually universal human social institution, not just in 3,000 years of Western tradition, um, but in virtually every known society, they have something called marriage. It doesn't look like our marriage tradition. It can be wildly different. But it always has something to do with bringing together a man and a woman into a public, not just a private sexual union, where their rights and responsibilities, not only towards each other, but towards the children that their sexual unions are hoped to produce, um, are publicly and not merely privately defined. Now, I'm not saying that just because it's always been like that, it can't be changed. That would be un-American. In fact, one of the things I love most about John's speech is the clarion call to American exceptionalism on the marriage issue, including the gay marriage issue. But um, I do think there aren't that many virtually universal human social institutions, and you do have to ask yourself, why, why is it? And so many different kind of wild little jungle and desert and high mountain, you know, completely disconnected. Again and again, you find this thing called marriage. And I think that the answer is that uh, three, three, three truths about human beings. Um, the first is that sex between men and women makes babies. The second is that societies need babies. Reproduction is not optional. And even if you personally never want to have a baby or never want to get married, in, to the extent that you, me, John, and everyone cares about the future of their society, they have to care about this, not as a special right or privilege, but as, as a contribution to the common good. And then the third truth is that um, those babies need a father as well as a mother, at least they certainly do better if they're united to both of the parents who made them. As a general, normal, not inviolable, but generally the normal rule of raising children. And um, so I think uh, if you put those three things together, that's the heart of the marriage idea. Sex makes babies, you need babies, those babies need their fathers as well as their mothers. And every society has to wrestle with these realities and come up with some way to attach the fathers, particularly the fathers of the children, to the mothers and to their own children. And so I would say that, uh, you know, marriage, when I say that marriage is fundamentally not about what you think about homosexuality, one of the things I mean is that, you know, our historic opposition to homosexual acts is not a human universal. There are many different cultures and societies in which uh, sexual relationships, we don't know much about women, uh, b but between men are socially licensed and approved. But until the 21st century America, they're not typically confused with marriage. Right? There's um, uh, the, I, this marriage idea has its own dignity and purpose, which is not rooted in, and again, I'm not making a statement about homophobia, I'm making a statement about marriage. It's not rooted in animus towards gay and lesbian couples or anything else. And if you reimagine marriage at a, at, at a more higher level of, of generality, so it encompasses both same and opposite sex couples, it's just going to be less well suited to its mission. And that's not only going to be bad for children and communities, uh, uh, it's going to be bad for gay people. Because, you know, the civilization in which we participate that is moving towards greater tolerance and uh, integration and respect for the human dignity of gay and lesbian people needs a marriage culture in order to perpetuate itself into the next generation. I don't know if I can convince you of that, but that's the ground I'm staking it on, you know, fundamentally, that it is not in the interests of gay and lesbian people to do this if I'm right. That's a big if. The third thing I would respond to in that is that I don't, and, and again, this is maybe an empirical question, but I don't actually believe that same-sex marriage, I mean, the debate is sort of divided. I don't think it's going to have an enormous effect on gay and lesbian people because at least wherever it's been tried, there is no signs that uh, the majority of gay and lesbian people are going to get married, certainly not in uh, Scandinavian countries that have had um, uh, full civil unions that are routinely referred to as marriages, um, certainly not in Canada, uh, even in Massachusetts, it's a few thousand couples at this point. Uh, the official statistics have not been released. The New York Times says 6,000. Um, and in other places as where we do have good data, like from Sweden, you see very high rates of, of exits from these same-sex uh, legal unions. So I happen to think that if, for example, 
there's a problem with getting your loved one into the hospital, if there's a problem with the way these systems are treating gay people, that marriage is not going to be a very good answer. Right? People who are not married are still going to need you know, the right to get their loved ones into their hospital rooms and to be treated with dignity. Um, so I see the tension that John raises as less acute because I don't see the gay community, at least at this point, supporting marriage as a norm. It's supporting it as a right. And the right to marriage, as John and I agree, um, is not really very deeply significant. So those are my three answers to why I don't see the moral choices that you're posing in the same way that you do, John. And I think it's important for me to explain that. There's no evidence anywhere that gay marriage is part of a revival to strengthen marriage. So I, uh, there's much more evidence that it's part of a, this, this threading apart of marriage from the idea that family structure matters, that the state has any role in regulating intimate relationships. It's part of the family diversity movement in most places. Perhaps America will be a great exception, but I don't think it's very likely. And um, I think fundamentally, when we get to the, the other risks that he poses of the next generation, of course he's right. If people view marriage as a discriminatory uh, institution, that's going to be very bad for marriage. But his, his statement presumes that we can't engage in and win the, the debate for why it is that this institution is shaped the way it is. Um, and I think that there's a lot of evidence that the next generation will listen to this marriage argument. I go around to colleges all the time, of course, and, and I know, I, I, I can't promise it, but I know that I'm not willing to believe that it's impossible to transmit the idea that there's a dignity and purpose to marriage as we understand it that is not about discrimination. It's not any more than Social Security is about age discrimination. It is shaped for a, perfect, per, uh, a certain purpose. That purpose serves the common good. It's not just an, it doesn't serve the needs of straight people. It serves the common good of all of us. And it's not only a good, it's a critical good. It's the crisis of our time that we can't figure out how to have a booming, you know, a market economy, a government that fulfills social insurance, a democratic free society that has a reasonably well-functioning marriage and family system. So under those circumstances, I would say that yes, of course, the well-being of the 9 or 15 million or however many gay and lesbian people is extremely important. Every human life matters. But, uh, you know, every, every year in this country, you know, we have 24, 30 million children who go to sleep in a home without their father. And I'm speaking for them, at least in my own mind. And I think that uh, they can't speak for themselves. And that whatever the, the answers, and I don't have them, I don't have the answers to the problems of, of, of what is the best way to advance the cause of the human dignity of gay and lesbian people in this country, in this context, in this time. Although I don't think that marriage is going to be the full answer, and I think it's going to have limited effects. But the answer is do not take this critical thing that has its own purpose and divert it from this purpose to this other problem of how we're going to um, live with each other and live with each other well uh, for the foreseeable future in America. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Here I am, caught in the middle of sitting right between these two, uh, listening to uh, this conversation. And as I was sitting here, I was jotting down a few ideas about uh, my reactions. And I've had a little help with this because these people kindly emailed me a few questions and ideas. So these are not altogether original with me. But one that is original with me, neither of you have sent me this one, uh, we pretty much know that um, heterosexual couples have sort of screwed up the institution of marriage. I mean, whether well, divorce rates 50 percent, I think it's slightly less maybe than 50 percent now, but even if you dropped it by 10, down to 40 percent, which I think is probably too generous, it's, just, it's you know, not many flags to wave about this in terms of the success of, of the institution. My question is, for both of you, do we have any reliable evidence that uh, gay and lesbian couples have done any better with relationships than heterosexual couples? 
I know you can't exactly compare since we don't have, in a legal sense, gay and lesbian marriage, but in terms of relationships, and, and maybe you only have impressionistic evidence to suggest, but do we know anything about this? Uh, Either of you? I can uh, tell you what I know, um, which is, first of all, A, I'm not an expert on gay and lesbian issues in general, so I, I know a lot about the research on marriage, so I, my opinion is not worth very much on this, but that doesn't stop me from, from giving it. So, uh, I, Whenever I look at the research on gay and lesbians, because they're a small population group, it almost always suffers from the fact that we don't have nationally representative data, so even the scientific studies that are done can't tell you how common, I mean, I, I presume one of your questions is how common is things like relationship breakup, et cetera, and I think the answer is that we don't have good population data in this country. Um, the general impression from the research is that gays and lesbians have more egalitarian relationships. There is also some evidence that there's a lot of the same problems um, and some distinctive ones, but high rates of domestic violence, um, you know, whether they're higher, again, you don't have population samples, I can't tell you for sure whether they're higher, but there's significant evidence of, of the same kinds of problems that affect all couples affecting gays and lesbians. There's a subclass of gay men, the role of sexual fidelity in maintaining relationships may be different for gay men than for straight couples. Um, Again, the research isn't very good, so I hesitate to say too much about it. There's one study from the 80s suggesting that the gay men who maintain long relationships are more likely to have some sort of extra relationship sex, whereas for opposite-sex couples, we know that uh, infidelity is uh, a clear uh, risk factor. And I've said more than I should because I don't know what I'm talking about. John, you know what you're talking about? Um, not much more. I think you're, you're basically right in that the answer is we know very little about this because for two reasons. First, we don't know what the average gay couple looks like because they don't sign up for studies. We don't have a national census of gay people. But second, it is just completely missing the point to compare a cohabiting or dating gay male couple with a married couple because, of course, the whole point is that marriage changes the relationship. It's an entirely different sort of thing. So to compare a married straight couple with an unmarried gay couple is like comparing a married straight couple with a cohabiting straight couple and saying, well, which relationship is stabler? Well, let's see, the, the cohabiting straight couple is more fragile. It lasts half as long on average, so don't let those people get married. Yeah, I, wouldn't, wouldn't follow. So the answer is basically I think we don't know and it's irrelevant. But I, I, do, I, do, I do think there's a certain, the fantasy that, and again, I, I don't, I'm not making an argument that gay relationships are unworthy of marriage, so don't, but I just reacting that other, I think that the, the fantasy that uh, the problems afflicting relationships in our society, that gay people have the answer to it, I, I think that that perhaps is a kind of romanticized vision um, that uh, the, the same kinds of problems at least that you find in all relationships, including the difficulties in forging stable ties that last, and dealing with other issues surface in all couples. So I guess I'm, I'm not, up. That, that I would be willing to say that human beings and human nature is pretty much the same um, and that the solution is uh, something that we're gonna have to find together rather than feeling like one group has already found it. Okay, so um, I think I get the drift of both of you on this question, probably not a very good question, but um, still it's, yeah, I get, Stupid answer. No, 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 no stupid no, questions. Not, not stupid answers. Um, I think it is an issue of, of fragility of relationships, which the sociological evidence would suggest, you know, it's pretty high, high fragility, no matter the nature of the uh, sexuality or, or, or attachment. So we can't resolve that. Um, we're going to resolve a lot of other questions here this evening, of course. <laughs> yeah, we'll resolve everything else. Right. But I've got a question for each of you. Um, Jonathan, I'm going to start with you. Um, you made a case for, uh, you know, let's take, keep our eyes on Massachusetts and see what happens. You, well, you said 10, 15, 20 years. See, see how it goes, and we'll see uh, where to go from there. Now, I understand, I understand the validity of your point that yours is kind of a wait-and-see attitude, which has a lot of merit. 
But doesn't that position also encourage this incredible potential diversity among the states where definitions of marriage will fluctuate from place to place and the laws will be incredibly different uh, depending on where you were married and where you live. My, my question is, isn't that a road down toward considerable confusion across the 50 states? Uh, there will be some confusion and we'll find in the period of the next three to five years that states will get pretty good at figuring out how to deal with the Massachusetts marriage. Until 1967, states all had very different definitions of marriage because some states didn't recognize an interracial marriage. Uh, courts had no trouble dealing with that. Um, I regret that period of confusion, but it is inevitable, and it's inevitable regardless of what Massachusetts does, because if you don't have gay marriage in Massachusetts, you will still have lots of states um, which will be doing stuff like civil unions, like what Vermont is doing, what California has already done, which doesn't go quite as far, and what other states will do. What's happened, Wade, is that there is no longer a single clear national consensus on the meaning of marriage. Uh, that's over. The question of, of how to deal with gay and lesbian couples has put paid to that, like it or not. So we are in for a period of figuring out our way forward and finding out what works. Uh, I think that gay marriage should be part of the experiment. Care to respond to that? I remember asking uh, John, who's very opposed to polygamy, if he could see. I mean, my uh, what it would be like if we, if we would have the same argument about I guess what I want to say is if you had polygamy in only one state in this country, you would have, John is right, you would have already fundamentally changed our common marriage culture. If polygamy becomes an acceptable variant in one state, the American marriage culture is different. And um, I don't know that uh, I agree that the debate is over yet. Um, I'm, it's not entirely clear what will happen even in Massachusetts, um, although... So, uh, but if once it becomes clearly institutionalized in one state, we are now in a different marriage culture, uh, for better or for worse. I do think that over time, the basic understanding of marriage will tend to be, I mean, either gay marriage will become a marginalized and little used thing in Massachusetts, which I know John doesn't want and I'm not predicting, in which case you might be able to have it in one state or not another. But there's gonna be, in a highly mobile society, there's gonna be a lot of internal pressure towards developing a common marriage culture of uh, one way or the other. Uh, and I don't know how it's going to be worked out, but I think John is right in saying um, two, two things I want. He said in his original speech, I'd just like to agree with him and bring it out here. If you're talking about marriage as simply a legal structure, the legal structure that we have now doesn't matter that much. It matters a little. There are certain benefits. Actually, most of them are at the very end of life. There's a lot of financial advantages in passing on property between spouses. But for most of your life, the legal structure of marriage is not the main thing that you get from marriage. The legal structure regulates and is a signal of the community's involvement in and respect for and affirmation of your marriage. And so um, I would agree with John that if you're in favor of real gay marriage as opposed to a set of legal benefits, the hard work of getting the American community to, you know, to agree with you is something that simply cannot, cannot be uh, avoided. That whether or not you think it ought to be done as a civil rights battle, there's the secondary battle as well to deal with the reality that right now in the latest Gallup poll, 68% of Americans are opposed to gay marriage. Majority of Americans are in favor of civil unions or gay marriage. Strong majorities of Americans support uh, civil rights legislation for gay people. But opposition to gay marriage is strong, it's holding, it is in fact growing. Um, Americans are really uncomfortable with this. They see it as, uh, you know, I, I think the best way I can of explaining it to people to whom it's become an obvious thing and they don't understand why anyone objects is, you know, right, it's, it's, like, it's like flipping the room upside down, you know, words that meant one thing. Husband used to point to wife. Husband and wife pointed to each other and together pointed to, you know, mother implied child and father. These kind of basic architectures of people's universes are being, we're, you're, they're being flipped and they're being flipped without democratic processes uh, by a powerful elite consensus, which the American people currently don't share. So that's your problem if you want gay marriage. I have a question for you, a uh, different kind of question, Maggie. 
you make a strong case for a traditional definition of marriage on the basis of its historic function, that is, baby production. And it's a very, it's a very straightforward and rather obvious argument. However, there are a lot of infertile couples. I don't know the exact statistic on that. A lot of infertile couples that cannot produce babies but yet can get married. So if infertile couples can marry, why not gays? You know, there's two ways you can ask that question. Um, and one, you can ask it in a narrow kind of the way lawyers ask it, which is if you have a class of people who can enter an institution, is this class make rational sense? And then you can ask, I'm, I'm not being a lawyer, I'm less interested in that question, um, and more in the question of, well, if infertile couples can marry and it doesn't hurt marriage, well, then why would allowing same-sex couples to marry hurt marriage? So let me answer that. Um, first of all, there's no class of people called infertile couples, right? I mean, everyone gets, when men and women get married, they're presumed, um, with the exception of older couples, uh, where the woman is older. They're presumed to be able to have a baby. It's mostly true. Uh, you don't know until you had a lot of sex whether or not you're ever going to have a baby. Lots of infertile couples eventually do have children. Um, moreover, uh, every man and woman who marries, uh, if they do have a child, that child is going to start life being protected by its mothers and fathers. So uh, if they stay tr truthful to their vows, they won't be producing children in, across multiple households and fatherless households. So in that sense, because the, you know, the procreative potential of opposite sex relationships is always there, channeling it into this thing called marriage is serving the functions of marriage, even if that individual married couple doesn't happen to have a child. In terms of the social consequences, you know, an infertile couple, I mean, a, a, young, a, a, a a married couple without children, whether younger or older, are part of the natural life cycle of marriage, right? You start out, ideally, I mean, I, I happen to start out married with an 11-year-old boy, but ideally you start out married, uh, you don't have any children, after a while you have children, after a while they grow up and you're an older couple. So the presence of these married couples in the system doesn't carry any social signal at all. They're not an identifiable class to whom an exception is being made. Yeah, I think, Wade, it's a very powerful question, um, and it has to be looked at on, on both levels. Um, Maggie said something interesting along the way there. She said there is no class of infertile couples except older women. That's a very big class. Every time we see a postmenopausal woman go to the courthouse and take out a marriage license, we can say that's an infertile couple. Now, there are two questions to ask about this. One is legal. Legally, we allow that, and the legal question, the reason gay, gay marriage cases have gotten as far as they did in Massachusetts and California, is the law is supposed to, to, um, to treat comparably situated people in comparable ways. And you can't say that legally the rationale for marriage is procreation and fertility and then exempt all straight couples from that rule while applying it to all gay couples. Legally, that's very hard to defend. But Maggie is right to focus also on the larger social issue. She and many people somehow presume that by barring infertile gay couples from marrying, we are going to strengthen the marriages of fertile straight couples. That strikes me as very peculiar. That's like saying, okay, well, shirts have two sleeves because people have two arms. Therefore, one-armed people should not be allowed to wear shirts because then two-armed people will be even more likely to wear them. It seems to me the logic of, of that is just perverse, and that it serves no social goal to exclude any couple from marriage on the grounds of infertility, whether it's an older straight couple or a gay couple. We celebrate as a culture when an aging widow takes a husband because we know that she is going to be safer and more secure and that he is going to be safer and more secure. Marriage is good for adults. It's good for children. It is good for children who are adopted. It is good for children who are natural. It is the preferred lifestyle, and I think that is the issue to focus on. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.